and we give you all praise and honor and glory as we spend time in your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning to you. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, it's good to be together with you. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you for coming. I want to invite you to take your Bibles in hand. We're in the book of Mark, but we're actually going to be spending more time in the book of Matthew. So they are the first two books in the New Testament. If you wanted to have your hands ready to turn there, I would appreciate that. And that also we have in the, out, in the uh, bulletin, I should say, that you received an outline that looks exactly like this one. And I would encourage you to use that because you will get a lot more out of everything that is about to take place over this next little bit. I wanted us to understand that today's topic coming from the book of Mark is all about overcoming temptation. Temptations are all around us. Temptation is sometimes pretty obvious. Sometimes it's fairly subtle. And I'm going to reveal some of the subtle ways that Satan loves to tempt my heart, perhaps your heart as well, my mind, perhaps your mind as well, because it goes beyond some of the simplistic things. But here's a little bit of a uh, setup for the challenge of temptation, the struggles that begin early in life as some kids are offered a marshmallow. Sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. I'm going to go do something, and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. It smells really good. It's up to you. You can have it now or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. So I'm going to leave and then I'll come back, okay? 
So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you I'd give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> so there you go. That's temptation. That's what it looks like. We want to talk a little bit about that. And it may not be a marshmallow that you're tempted to eat, but it may be something else. And so we want to expose some of the work that uh, Satan has in mind. And we're going to learn from the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who went through great temptation. And because he went through that temptation, two things we learn from the book of Mark and Matthew and Luke as well. And number one, that Jesus is worthy to be our Savior because he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And that number two, he is able to come to the aid of those, uh, those of us who are tempted to help us in our time of need. So we are seeing this story about Jesus' temptation early in his ministry. He's just become public in his ministry. He's been baptized. The Holy Spirit's come upon him. And, uh, and there's like an image of a dove. And it's sort of this public installation of Jesus in his ministry to the nation of Israel and ultimately to the nations around the world. Here's what Mark says about this passage. He says, uh, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. Here is if you travel over to Israel today, as I did many years ago, and we walked the Jericho Road from Jericho ascending up into Jerusalem, you walk by this Byzantine monk facility that is there in the wilderness area that some people believe that Jesus was tempted in that area. Here is what wilderness looks like in Jesus' day, and it looks much like that today as well. I'm going to read in Matthew chapter 4. As you think about this wilderness, this is where Jesus was. It wasn't some, some comfortable air-conditioned room. There wasn't some people pampering him and caring for him. He's in the wilderness. There is nobody else around there. Some angels eventually come and minister to him, but while he is there, Satan tempts him. Here's the way Matthew records it, because Mark only gives us a few verses on it, so we go to Matthew to get the bigger picture. And it says this by Matthew in Matthew 4. Again, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. After 40 days, he became hungry. And the tempter, who was Satan, said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Jesus did. Jesus said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, Jerusalem, and he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And he quotes from Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus responded, On the other hand, it is also written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to him, 
All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. In that situation, we see a number of things. I'm going to give you some observations, some things I think are take-home passages and truths that God would have us because Satan is still in the business of tempting you and me. You may feel like you're in a wilderness. You may feel like you're all alone. You may feel like you're going through something that no one else has ever gone through. You may even feel as though God has abandoned you in this moment. But what we're learning from this passage are ways that Christ wants to help us. The word temptation, interesting in the Scriptures, can mean two things. Temptation sometimes is used as a testing from God to purify us, to do a work in our lives that otherwise would not occur. Temptation, the same Greek word, is also used of tempting or enticing us to sin. And this passage is to entice Jesus to sin. But sometimes temptation or testing comes from God. James 1.13, to be clear, God never tempts us to sin. He always entices us to purity through testing. And so that's a big distinction. But here's what we learn about the life of Christ. Jesus is an example for us. He offers us principles to overcome any temptation that comes. And I'm going to expose some of the temptations that are more subtle in nature. The temptation is not, I am tempted to go to uh, Dunkin' Donuts and buy a donut. That's a temptation, but we want to go deeper than that. We want to see some of the things that Satan is trying to do to our hearts and our lives, and we'll expose Satan's tactics. Our temptations, we learn from this passage in Mark and Luke, our temptations may follow a renewed commitment and spirit-led walk with God. One of the things that Satan does not want for me or for you is to lead a life that is led by the Holy Spirit and is renewed and committed to the cause of Christ. Notice what the Scriptures say. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him, Jesus, to go out into the wilderness. This is chapter 3. Last week we saw Jesus getting baptized and we saw the words of God the Father speaking to God the Son, Jesus Christ, and says, You are my Son. I am so pleased with you. You are my beloved Son. I am excited about what you're doing. I am so in love with you. And God blesses the heart and life of Jesus, a human being who feels the way we feel in those situations. And then interestingly enough, after saying, I have so many wonderful things for you, he then immediately, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit impels him. The word impel is a very strong word to force someone to do something. It's been used of demons being cast out of a person's life. So it's the power of God to force someone into a situation. And what Jesus is learning is that the Father is sending the Spirit to force him to go out into the wilderness. And in that wilderness, Satan is going to tempt him. So it's interesting to me that the first thing that I observe about temptation is that it is not uncommon for temptation to come into our lives to test us to see whether we really believe what we say we believe. And this is sort of nostalgic, Sunday. I'm going to go back in my early years of ministry to some things some of you have heard, but I'm going to repeat them for the sake of me thinking back to the way God used temptations in my life. When I was in college at Westmont College, Santa Barbara, 
Okay, Karen, yes. Karen and Curtis, thank you very much. Three of us in this whole big room. All right. Um, and I was living a fairly lukewarm, sitting on a fence kind of a life and was challenged to recommit. So I recommitted my life to Jesus Christ. I said, Lord, I will do anything you ask me to do. I will even serve you in full-time pastoral ministry. And so I made that commitment. I applied to go to Dallas Seminary, applied, and was in the process of applying and receiving that application and that, re- that acceptance into Dallas Seminary. At that same time, I took a theological course at Westmont because I thought, well, I need to think about theological and biblical things. So I took the theological class on my junior year at Westmont College, and I came to the f- midterm exam, and I flunked the midterm exam. I thought, well, wait, I just committed my life to follow you, Jesus, and now I flunked the midterm exam. I'm pretty depressed and discouraged about that, so I went in to talk to the professor, and I said, boy, I'm kind of, kind of discouraged about this because I just made application to go to seminary because I just committed my life to follow Jesus Christ, and lo and behold, I take your midterm exam, and I flunk it. And he said to me, that's probably because you're not cut out to go into full-time ministry. I said, oh, thank you very much. It's not unusual that when you make a commitment, there's something that comes along to sort of entice you to say, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe this is not for me. Because the last thing Satan wants us to do is to move forward spiritually in maturity and following Jesus. So he brings things to undercut us, to tempt us to really question ourselves. Notice that when Satan comes to him and he says these things, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he will immediately go into this attack about who he really is. Because we come to this second point is this, temptation will attack us at our most vulnerable time and method. He will come and try to undercut us in that moment, in that season of life. So he finds those elements of weakness in us and he loves to come and attack there. Notice what it says. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. For 40 days he's being tempted. It's unclear whether after 40 days he was tempted or in the midst of the 40 days he was being tempted. But the point of the fact is he's in a vulnerable spot. There is nobody there to support him. He's all by himself, and he was with a wild beast, so it wasn't like there was a very comfort zone where a little kitty is coming along to help him out. And then it says, and the angels were ministering to him to him after the 40 days. Satan loves to come along and hit us in our most vulnerable time. And I think back to my early days of doing what I'm doing here this morning. And I realized early on in ministry of preaching that preaching in the 20 minutes after preaching is perhaps one of the most vulnerable times for depression. I've learned that. And I remember one Sunday when I was preaching way back in Corona days and we were first getting started in this thing called preaching and pastoring and working in a church. And I went home because I was terribly discouraged because I thought I'd preached another bad sermon. So I began to console myself and think what a miserable person I am. I'm really cut out for this. Am I really good enough for this? Do I really have what it takes? And this vulnerability, those moments of vulnerability when you you have a sense of weakness and Satan loves to come along and, and really entice us to question God. And so when I got home, I was kind of discouraged, so I turned on the TV, probably hoping to watch an NFL game. But lo and behold, I turned it on, and there was a TV preacher, and some of you know him. His name is Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley, yeah. You've got to be an old-timer like me to know Charles Stanley. The younger ones know Andy Stanley, his son, who's doing some pretty good work as well. So Charles Stanley is preaching. He's a, 
He's a TV preacher. He had his own church in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, has done a great ministry over the years and still is preaching on TV. But this case, he was preaching in his church. And as he was preaching, the camera was focused on, Aunt, on, on Charles Stanley. And in those days, as we did in my early years here at Calvary Church, the choir was up here. And their choir was up there behind Charles Stanley. And so at one point in his sermon, they focused real close on Charles Stanley. And as they focused on Charles Stanley, they focused on some choir members right behind him, sort of over his shoulder. And as they focused on those choir members over his shoulder, there was one man sound asleep in the middle of this message. And I thought, that's great. I feel so much better that even Charles can put him to sleep. And we have this morbid sense of humor as pastors about miserable sermons and people falling asleep, and that's the big joke. But it's based on reality occasionally. But there are those moments that I go back and think about those early years and my corona years where a couple sat me down and told me for two and a half hours that I don't have what it takes to be a pastor. I actually have had people tell me that here as well. There are those wonderful folks that claim to love Jesus as much as I do that God somehow permits. Sort of like when Jesus was impelled to go into the wilderness and being tempted there in this miserable place of wild beasts. There are, there, are some, there are some of those wild beasts even in church. And there are those moments when they come alongside in that moment of vulnerability, we begin to question who we are and whether we're doing the right things. And sometimes we're not and we get corrected. But the last thing Satan wants us to do is to press on to follow him. So I need to remember, I need to remember this truth, that Satan uses the same methods and temptations since the beginning of time. You read Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is a parallel to Matthew 4. The very things that, that Satan does to Jesus in Matthew 4, he did to Eve in the Garden of Eve, Eden in Genesis 3. And so if you want to do a little study, you can follow the parallel passage where Satan uses the same tactics to cause us to have spiritual failure. He wants us to know that what he does is going to destroy our faith in God. I was intrigued by this last week or so. There was this uh, thing that everybody got in Hawaii on their phone. Emergency alert. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediately shelter. This is not a drill. What would you do if you got a thing on your phone that says a nuclear bomb is going to blow up any moment? Now, because I grew up in the area of the 50s, I would get under my desk and know that I would be safe. Remember that? That's all they need is they need one of those old wooden desks that goes up like this. You climb underneath it, no problem. Well, they must not have had any of those kind of desks over there in Hawaii because the next 37 minutes, people were running around crazy like they didn't know what to do and they were causing all this panic in motion. I want us to know that there is a similar warning system that God gives to us that is real, as this was obviously not the correct warning system. But here is the warning system for what Satan will try to do for us. This is the verse that exposes the tactics that Satan used in Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. He used it in Matthew 4. He's using it on us on a regular basis. And these 
And this is what John writes. For all that is in the world, Satan is the god of this world. John later says, Satan is the god of this world. This is how he operates. What does he do? He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so these three areas are the areas that Satan loves to take us out. And he will do all that he can to disguise it, to be deceptive, to somehow deceive us. But this is what he does. I'm going to expose how it happens in Matthew 4. The temptation will make us question our security or identity in Jesus Christ. You notice that the first thing that Satan says to Jesus, and he says it a couple of times, he says it in verse 3, and the tempter came to him and says, if you are the Son of God. Then he says in verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Satan loves to come along and sort of squish the identity of who we are. God the Father had just said to Jesus, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Satan comes along and says, Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's really true. If you are the Son of God, can I really count on that being the case in this matter as well? If you are the Son of God, I'm really pleased with you. When we are tested, we begin to question, you know, if you are my Father, Lord then what's up with this? Why in the world am I in this wilderness, whether spiritually or physically, and you're allowing these wild beasts to sort of roam around me? And then we begin to say, well, if you are my son, if you you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, I begin to question, are you really pleased with me? I don't know about you, but I have that come to my thought and my mind. There's any number of times when things aren't going the way I want them to go, I really question, God, are you really pleased with me? Are you challenging my faith in some way that says, God, this is sort of a conditioned love and pleasure that you have in me? Satan loves for us to question whether God is pleased with me. Satan loves to question whether you are really a child of God. He loves to cut out our spiritual feet so that we're not really sure I'm who I think I am. I begin to question everything. So it begins to undermine the very basis of our calling or standing before God. And then Satan comes along and tempts us in this way. Let me read the verses again. And the tempter came to him and says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's temptation number one. He looks at all the rocks, and there's lots of rocks in, the, in Israel. That's why you see rock as a metaphor that is used frequently. And he says, turn some of these rocks that you see here in this wilderness, just turn them into bread. Jesus is not eaten for 40 days. So it's natural that he would go to the food metaphor to somehow entice Jesus to eat bread. Well, there is no passage in Scripture that says it's sinful to eat bread. What Satan loves to do is to make us think that there are only sinful things that are in the Ten Commandments and, and the other laws of God that we find in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. He's challenging him to turn rocks into bread, and Jesus can do that. Jesus took fish loaves and bread, and he fed five, ten thousand people. Jesus can do that. There's nothing sinful about turning rocks into bread. There's nothing sinful about eating fresh, baked bread bread that have come out of the stones. And that's a reminder to me. 
Satan doesn't always tempt us to pornography and adultery and sexual immorality and lying and stealing. Those are all sinful things. But many of us are smart enough to recognize sin for what it is. Sometimes what Satan loves to do is to come alongside and disguise the sin, to take something that is innocent like rocks into bread and turn that into something that begins to undermine my faith in God. This is what I noticed. Temptations will attack us in the lust of the flesh, some physical, emotional craving. But here is the bottom line for me as I look at this. You may desire or pursue something physically or emotionally satisfying out of selfish desires. There are things that are not innately wrong, but they become wrong because of their impact on me. Remember early on, a woman came to me and said, you need to come and talk to my husband because he's wrong. I said, well, how is he wrong? He's playing softball. Softball? I play softball. I played softball with her husband. I thought, my goodness, you're getting a little crazy now. And she says, no, you don't understand. Every weekend he's got a tournament, and every weekend he's gone. Saturday and Sunday he's never at home with me and the kids. And that opened my eyes, that there are some things that are very good and fun to do, but there are some things that are very fun and often good to do that keeps us from the better things that God wants for us. It is that subtle way that He comes to undermine by giving to us something good that is replacing God's very best. And that's so subtle. That's where you and I, we need, to, we need to be alert to those things that are taking us from the very best that God has for us, the very thing that God calls us in to do, because He loves to replace those things with other things that seem harmless, but they're corrosive to a faith in an Almighty God. So the temptation is this Will God provide? Jesus, you have a physical need, you're hungry. I ask you, Jesus, to take this rock and turn it into bread. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no scripture you can go to that says you shouldn't do that. And so what he loves to do is says, I want to identify you have a need, and I want you to let you know that God's really not pleased with you, that because you have this need, God is not pleased with you. This is what Satan loves to do is just to undercut that. It's subtle, it's repetitive in this nature of I'm not really called by God, I'm not really really being pleasing to God, I'm not really the child of God, and there's this corrosive effect of my faith in God because I have a need that's not being met. And if God really loved me, then why do I have this need? I was reminded again early on in our ministry that when Joy and I were going through infertility problems, then she finally became pregnant. And then shortly after her pregnancy was disclosed and revealed, she had a miscarriage. What's interesting that after that, at the same time that we were trying to get pregnant and trying to have a, mis- trying to have a baby, and then the miscarriage occurred, that at the same time, at that very same time, I was counseling a family whose 16-year-old daughter had gotten pregnant in high school. And I'm thinking, Lord, thanks for putting salt in the wound. As I work with them, and then we carry our own level of grief. 
because something happens when deprivation occurs. And you all, many of you have had deprivation of some time, a need. It could be a death, it could be a loss, it could be a lost job, finances, cancer scare, cancer disease, a loved one that is no longer here. And Satan loves to take those moments and cause me to think, God's not pleased. I'm not sure I'm walking with the Lord the way I should and begin to undermine this whole thing of God is not providing for me. God, what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me? This undermining. And then Satan comes and he lifts him up so he can look over the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus reminds Satan in verse 4, man should not live on bread alone. So it's not the physical needs that God is ultimately interested in, although that's part of it. But in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, it's that spiritual hunger that God wants, not that physical hunger. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he stood on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He will give his angels charge concerning you. And on their hands they will, uh, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said on the other hand, it is written, you should not tempt the Lord your God. So he brings them high above the pinnacle of the temple, and he looks over this, and he says, just cast yourself down. If you really believe that God is a mighty God and loves you, he will take care of you. Satan says, you know, you won't tempt the power and love of God. And so the practical practical application is this. Temptation will attack our pride of life. It is my satisfaction. That's what I want. You may be tempted. This is the, the subtle under, underlay of Satan's temptation to Jesus and to us. You may be tempted to find satisfaction living by your own rules with no fear of consequences from anything that will happen. See, what Satan is saying to Jesus, Jesus, here's the Word of God, Psalm 91. He sort of parts, you know, partially quotes it correctly doesn't get it all right. So here's what your father says. Here's what God's word says. So let's live according to your word. He says he's going to catch you. He won't let your foot get hurt. So jump, Jesus. If God loves you, he will take care of you in that moment. And so they're challenged by that. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. You're making a mockery of the word. But Satan's subtle attack so that you can't trust what God says. He said he'd take care of you. He'll protect you. He'll catch you. You can't really trust God's Word. It's interesting. Here's what Barna said. David Kinneman, who works for Barna, leads Barna, said, Truth is increasingly regarded as something felt rather than something known. We're losing the essence of what is truth in God's Word. In David Kinneman's study, he found that this question, Is moral truth absolute or relative? 35% of Americans believe it is absolute, 44% of Americans believe it is relative, and 21% just don't know. So that means 35% of the people around us aren't really sure that there is an absolute truth that should always guide me and direct my life. Satan comes and quotes biblical truth and then makes Jesus back away from verifying that God will protect you and catch you if you jump. It's undermining biblical truth. Satan loves to undermine biblical truth and make us question it. In that study that you may be able to see on the screen, who are you most likely to see as a credible news source? Reporters at 39%. That surprised me. I don't know about you. Nobody, I trust my instincts. 
a family friend of a peer, 27%, a famous academic, and way down here at 14%, a pastor I personally know. It's really encouraging me to know that 14% of you are believing anything that I'm saying here this morning. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled over that. A teacher, a politician is at 7%. At least I'm better than a politician. A famous pastor, 6%. So I'm glad I never became famous because instead of 14%, 6% of you would believe everything I say. Or a celebrity. We love our celebrities. I listen to everything they have to say, led by them. Joke. We are in a society where truth is not absolute, where truth is not trustworthy, where biblical truth is certainly diminished. Satan loves that. That's what he does in this passage. You know, yesterday was a women's march that said that there's 20,000 women marching here in Santa Ana. And around the world, there's probably, in, in many countries, there was a lot of march. And we're living in a so-called Me Too generation where women are fighting back about sexual harassment as they should, bullying as they should, rape as they should, and so all of us should. So we live in a world where women are being cast as victims and they're finally rising up. And in many ways, that's a good thing. But notice the tie-in with this point of Satan and Jesus and us today, as Nancy Piercy puts it this way in her book. Sexual exploitation is unlikely to stop with drug and, and sex parties in the Silicon Valley. She writes extensively about that debauchery up there, unless we are ready to rethink fundamental convictions. As I put it in my book, Love Thy Body, at the root of moral issues is the question, what kind of cosmos do we live in? Are we products of blind material forces, or does the natural world reflect some kind of purpose, and behind it a person, she's pointing to Jesus, who loves us and has a purpose for our lives? A society's worldview ultimately determines whether it treats the human body as just another piece of matter or whether it grants the body value and dignity, imbuing sexual relations with the depth and significance we all long for. And what Nancy is challenging us is what does Scripture say about sex? And have we lost the undermoorings of the biblical concept that sexual activity within the context of marriage is God's ideal? But we have eroded that. It has become uh, a very old-fashioned kind of thinking. And as a result of that, we are seeing more and more and finally being exposed as it should be of many of the great and powerful and rich people being exposed for the complete undermining of the concept of God's biblical morality. And all that goes back to what Satan said to Eve in the garden. Indeed, did God say, is his first words. And what Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness. Did God really say in Psalm 91, he'd protect you? I don't think he means it. And so what God said no longer has meaning and value for us. And then finally, we have this idea that God's temptation, you deserve a better life, so don't trust God's word to guide you. You deserve to have more freedom to do whatever you want to do. And the consequences of that can be devastating. 
And the last point is this in Matthew 4, 8 through 10. The temptation will attack our lust of the eyes, the cravings of the mind. You will see life from your own perspective and think you are your own God to seek only what delights you. You deserve what you see, desire, and makes you happy. You deserve what you should have in life. And, and the Scripture says this, Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him. Satan takes him and says, I want to give all of this to you. You deserve all this. Look at all that you should have, that God's holding out on you. This should be yours. And Jesus says, I'm not falling for that trap. You can't show me things that you think I deserve, and somehow I am dissatisfied with God so I can be satisfied with what you're giving to me? No way. So Satan loves to cause dissatisfaction with God's authority to work in my life. He's somehow cheating me by not getting everything that I want. Again, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that same contrast. It's interesting to me that in Adam and Eve are in a perfect garden. Talk about dissatisfaction with everything that God's doing for me. Sometimes we think my circumstances are so bad, no wonder I can't trust God. My circumstances are so bad, no wonder I'm a victim of all these things. The point of the fact is, in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan came and tempted Eve, they were in the most perfect environment there is. There was nothing more that they needed. They had everything they could possibly want. It was perfect. And in that perfection, Satan still undercut their faith in God. It's not my circumstances that I need to have control over. It's my heart of faith to say, God, even when I'm deprived, even when my needs are great, even when it looks like you're not pleased with me, even when I'm not sure I can trust what you say in your word, even when there's great dissatisfaction in the way I look at my life and things that are so wrong about this world in which I live, God, even then... I know it's not my circumstances, it's my heart. I don't want Satan to steal my heart of trusting you when deprivation, loss, dissatisfaction, displeasure with God occurs. God, I want to trust you even then. That's what Satan's trying to do to Jesus. That's what Satan's trying to do to you and me. He's taking whatever situation you're in and wanting me to think, God, I'm not your child. You're not pleased with me. What's wrong with me? Can I really trust you? Can I really go to your word and rely upon it? My dissatisfaction is a sign that God doesn't like me or love me anymore. God wants us to understand that he is in this world that he can be trusted. I love Hebrews 2.18. It says, For since Jesus himself was tempted in Matthew 4, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted as well. Jesus wants us to succeed. And he wants to minister to us. In the outline that I have for you on the back side, I give you some specific things that helps us overcome the temptations of Christ that Satan brings before Christ. Number one, identify the areas of attack. What desires or cravings are enticing you? What areas of need or dissatisfaction do you have? Identify them. Be honest with them. Pray for Christ's presence to intervene. He says in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, I want to come. I want you to draw near. I want to care for you in this moment. I really want to be with you. I went through that with Satan in the wilderness. I want to be with you as the angels came and ministered to me, Jesus would say. Number three, learn God's truth 
by studying his word so you can live in obedience. Understand it in a way that is not misleading, but is bringing us to the throne of grace. Turn to a godly friend for support, accountability, and prayer. I love Matthew 5. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then if you've been wrong, repent and God will forgive you. He wants to restore you. He wants us to succeed. He is on our side. He wants to do a mighty work. I'm going to pray for us. And after I pray, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to have come up to the prayer points and have someone pray with you, you don't have to disclose anything if you don't want to. But if you'd like to have somebody come alongside and pray with you and support you and encourage you and reassure you that God does love you, He cares for you, He wants your very best, He is not trying to destroy your faith, He wants to enhance your faith, I would love for that to occur. So as I pray also, we're going to receive our offering. I'm so grateful for your gifts and your financial faithfulness to the Lord in this way as well. So let me pray for us. Father, help us now as we walk before you. God, it's distressing to see that sometimes Satan gets the best of us, that he wants to undermine our faith and trust in you, that he wants to plant those seeds of doubt, that he wants to question if you are pleased with us. God, I know I've been there. Perhaps others have as well and are still there. God, I pray for recovery, for restoration, for renewal, for healing. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another all the more that Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, and wants us to draw near to him. Thank you for this offering. Thank you for your grace to us now. As I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.